Hi, it's Taylor. Quickly jumping in before the episode starts to let you know that we've changed our name and are now Sisters Assemble. You can find our updated social handles in the show notes. Enjoy the show! Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Let's Talk Marvel Fan Theories podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Katie, and we're two sisters and borderline obsessed Marvel fans who have been following the Marvel Cinematic Universe closely for years. And now we want to share our MCU discussions with you. We chat about our own predictions and theories, plus some of our favorites from online, and our reactions to all of the Marvel content that's considered MCU canon, including the Disney Plus shows and the movies, as well as the Marvel news you need to know. All right, we are back with another episode of the Marvel Replay series. With this episode, we will be discussing Thor and the Avengers, which are the next two movies in timeline order as far as the MCU goes. So we're super excited to dive into these. Katie, do you want to take it away? Well, we're going to start with Thor, as she just said. (laughs) But... Honestly, I want to just say these first two, or like these two, not first two, they're the only two, but these two, I think, were perfect that they ended up together because they quite literally, yeah, they quite literally feed into each other. You very, I think, very rarely can perfectly have movies that feed into each other this way, especially because I think there's a lot of, especially with end credit scenes, different factors, but there was no other factor here. You watch Thor, you watch Avengers right afterwards. And I think the most common thread is obviously Loki, which I know will be a whole thing we get into. But starting with Thor, honestly, I think people discredit the Thor franchise because the first two are always seen as not that great. But then the real issue for me was only the bleached eyebrows and beard. Like, I didn't so think it was bad. I'm said that. No... And honestly, you know, people, to your point, they kind of crap on the Thor franchise. But I challenge you, or those people really, to name another franchise that's more important or more impactful to the Infinity Saga than Thor. I mean, you have Loki, you have the Tesseract, you have the Aether, which is the reality stone, and then you have the destruction of Asgard and the death of Odin. You have the Mind Stone with the Scepter. Oh, exactly. And, you know, you have the death of Odin, which basically opens the door for Thanos. So, like, is there another franchise that is, like, comes even close in terms of its impact in the Infinity Saga? I think not. So, to your point, bleached eyebrows and beard aside, like, Thor's pretty great. I didn't think the film, and I don't know why I'm talking about it, like, I've watched it for the first time, but I guess that's the whole just trying to this is not the first time obviously i've seen thor but i'm going to try and pretend it almost was but i think plot wise it was fairly strong i i think it followed the typical sort of superhero movie my biggest like plot complaint and this is nothing against her character but natalie portman's character jane just didn't add much to me. And I know the whole thing was she's, like, the person he meets when he first... I mean, she literally hits him with her car. So, like... Twice. <laughs> yeah, twice. So, he's obviously the first person that she meets. Obviously, I know Eric being in the picture opens up the Avengers. And then, obviously, Thor Dark World. Darcy, we see what she goes on to be a part of. So, I understand, especially now that Jane's going to be involved in the fourth Thor. I get it. 
But watching it, I was like, I could do without this. And for a film that's supposed to be so heaven, heaven, <laughs> heavily <laughs> based off of him learning to be less about himself, I just was kind of annoyed that there was an added love aspect when I thought that it, it hindered part, like, I guess to a degree it helped him grow. I just thought it was like, I didn't need this. You know, I, I could have done without the whole, like, excessive love issue and just seen him mature in his time on Earth, which he's supposed to. I think that's fair. But to your point, I think it also fits the quote-unquote formula, yeah. especially that they were following in the first phase. Like, what motivates Tony? Pepper. What motivates Steve? Oh my god, why am I blanking on her name? Because she's insignificant. <laughs> 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 I know how you feel about her, so we're not going to get into it. But even then, like, I, I think at least Steve's could be argued that there might have been other motivations. <laughs> oh my god, I can't with you sometimes. <laughs> no, but am I wrong? Like, why no, did he go not. across it's, it's enemy lines? Yeah, like, yeah. there were clearly other motivations as well, so I think Steve's wasn't quite as as far into that structure as definitely no, I could element. see. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, the kind of element is like there is a level of like romantic interest or romantic motivation for kind of the big three. So it kind of follows that formula, if you will. I don't really mind the love interest. You know, I think what's cool about Jane is like she's so brilliant. So I really enjoy that. Like, yeah, you know, I think that's one thing that the MCU did really well from the beginning Pepper is a brilliant businesswoman. And Peggy, you know, I know how you feel about her, but you can't take away the fact that she is a woman in a man's world making her name for herself. And I think... And you know what? I didn't mind her in the first film, so I'm fine <laughs> to give her that credit. <laughs> Same. And I think Jane, she's known as this brilliant scientist that's really on the verge of a, a very important scientific breakthrough. So I will say, like, I didn't mind as much the, the love interest in that angle. And I think she's another one where she's an example of the MCU at least working to create multidimensional and independent and strong women from the beginning. Not all women, I don't think, are portrayed that way, but at least the love interests of the big three start out on a pretty strong footing, I would say, versus other franchises or even other, perhaps, movies down the road. That's fair. I think, personally, I think more of my issue was, I think Thor's is the fastest we see. That's fair. It kind of come about, and it felt maybe a little unnatural, is more of the issue. I mean, for half the film, they thought he was crazy because they didn't think he was actually telling the truth. So I think it was more maybe the unnatural aspect of, like, this was fast, and suddenly they're in love with each other, and it's just, like, everything it becomes about her. Like, I mean, even at the end of the film, Odin, or not Odin, Heimdall is saying, you know, she searches for you, blah, 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 and it becomes so big in Thor, and then obviously we see that in The Dark World, which we'll cover later as it isn't in this episode yet, but then when Ragnarok happens, it's just, like, an interesting thing. So that was maybe one of the things. Yeah, no, I think in terms of the speed, I agree. I think, you know, Tony and Pepper, I'm, I'm just going to compare it to, you know, the movies that we've already kind of gone through, and Thor is the last of the big three to have his origin story. So comparing, you know, to Tony and Pepper, like, they worked together. She was his assistant and his confidant and his support system for 
they don't really give a year count, but it's obvious that it's many years. Right. And I would argue that Stephen Peggy is also a little quicker, but there is, I think, an unspecified time jump within the first Avenger yeah, that kind of shows that there is some more time and a little more evolution there. Whereas to your point, like Thor happens in what, probably a week or two weeks. Yeah. You know, that. that's very fast in comparison to, you know, the other two. Yeah. I mean, so getting right into it, because I think I said it already. Loki is obviously the, what's interesting is he is quite literally the villain in both Avengers and Thor, which is why it was great that we are covering these two together. Because, and I think I saw this, I saw, well, I, I know I saw it, I don't know where I saw it, but I essentially saw it, it was like a meme based off the idea that, you know, pretty much everything that happened in the Infinity Saga started mainly because Loki was playing a practical joke I literally joke said that to you, like, last brother. week. It was okay, me. Well, it, was it was me. You. I was the source. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't remember. But, so I, I think that's funny because... I truly think in Thor, and especially watching it now, you really see the moment Loki switches sides. Yeah. And you see when it was fun, he was just playing around, he was trying to get his brother to get all riled up. But even when they're in Jotunheim, he's telling him, he's like, let's go, let's walk away. I mean, when Thor goes to walk, starts walking away, and Laufey is like, go back, princess or something, and Loki's just like, Dang. Yeah, like immediately he's like, we were so I close. I want to dive into like, that really quickly. Okay. Because that I totally agree with. There's one area where I can't figure out. So obviously Loki is like the master manipulator, right? Right. I'm trying to figure out in this scene after Odin, well, not really Odin, the destroyer kills the frost giants that had come into the vault to steal the casket. There is a scene where Thor, Loki, Sif, and the Warriors 3 are in that kind of banquet hall, and Thor flips the table because mm-hmm. he's, like, really unhappy, right? Yeah. And Loki says something where he's like, you know, it's not like you can go to Jotunheim and kill them all. And it's like, light bulb moment for Thor. Like, I'm going to go kill them all. And I can't decide if that was him manipulating Thor or not because he – like, says it, and it almost seems intentional, but then as soon as Thor's like, I'm gonna go to Jotunheim and kill them all, he looks incredibly concerned and, like, obviously doesn't want to be there when they're on Jotunheim. So, like, that's one moment where I'm like, I can't decide if Loki is being a master manipulator or if he literally was just trying to, like, calm his brother down and things went way out of control. No, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that was a moment I also kind of dinged in my own head because I was like, is he trying to get his brother and get a rise out of him here? Or is he truly just trying to comfort his brother? I, I A part of me, and this is to be fair, I mean, I am, have been a Loki stan since day one. So I think uh, the part of me that's that wants to just make the call and say, you know, I think he was trying to comfort his brother and opened up a gate because you can clearly tell it, like, while I believe he's a manipulator, I don't think the consistent need for the throne and to prove himself truly, truly came to light within him until he interacted with the Frost Giant and realized he was not of Asgard. I would agree. I think it was always... Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely always there, but he did not understand those feelings. And I think to an extent, 
he wanted to ruin Thor's day, whatever. That was him being the jokester he is, and because he'd always been in his shadow. But it was never to the extent where he... I mean, even when Thor was being cast out, I don't think he ever thought that far into advance. I don't think you can pin Loki as evil until later. No, I agree. Even so, in that first scene on Asgard, when you see Thor coming into the throne room on his coronation day, like, you can see the tension in Loki. Like, he's clearly unhappy. But I don't think it's with malice. I think it's a it's layered, right? Like, I think it's a few things. I think it's, well, here's my brother in the spotlight again. Well, here's my brother being the chosen one again. Well, here's my brother who's really ill-suited to the throne. Like, he even says to Laufey later on in the movie, he says, well, I wasn't trying to do anything except delay my idiotic brother from being on the throne a while longer and basically pulling Asgard into ruin which he has a point because Thor at the beginning of the movie is insufferable. I mean, truly. Well, and honestly, in the best of ways, I would not say necessarily in Thor, but when we see Ragnarok, when Loki has taken over the throne under the guise of Odin, Asgard's chilling. They're doing okay. Yeah, I mean, and I think to a certain extent, Loki wanted to prove himself, obviously, but I think to a certain extent, he... And to Odin's own point, they were both kings. They were raised to be kings of different kingdoms. Rightful heirs. Both of them. Yeah, exactly. And I think Loki, ironically, would have been a very great leader. He just went about it poorly. And that turning moment, like I said, is especially then when he's holding the casket and he turns around and he's in his frost giant form and he's like, am I a monster? And him and Odin have the entire interaction. Odin obviously ends up in the the Odin sleep and everything. But I think that is his turning moment where, like, that full turning moment. Because I don't think up until that point he truly was trying to do I don't think he ever meant to get his brother cast off. Oh, I agree. I don't think he ever thought that to be the reaction no, that was I mean, going to happen. No, I mean, if you go back, sorry to interrupt you, but if you go back to that moment in the Bifrost, I guess you, the Bifrost chamber, wherever Heimdall kind of sits and stands guard, you know, that moment when they come back from Jotunheim and Heim, not Heimdall, sorry. Well, Heimdall is there, but, and Odin is there. And he, you know, strips Thor of his titles and his armor. And of course, Mol, Mol, I still can't say it, Mew Mew. Mjolnir. Yes, I thought I had it this time. <laughs> I just didn't. <laughs> but he strips Mew Mew from Thor, you know, Loki looks horrified. He looks like, what is happening? I can't deal with this. Like, this is, he kind of basically just looks like, oh crap, what have I done? This is so much more than I bargained for. Like, I just wanted to like mess with my brother on his big day. And instead I got him cast out of our realm forever and completely stripped of his titles. Like, he literally bit off more than he could chew or basically got a reaction that he was not expecting yeah and i think in that moment is when he was like okay now is my time to prove myself but then it was right afterwards when he was holding the casket and that entire interaction is what put the more hostile intentions behind it and i mean it's like that whole thing of like he wants to destroy what he comes from because he doesn't want the proof that he comes from it, essentially. So that's why he wants to kill all the Frost Giants and Jotunheim and everything, because that's like his darkest secret. I mean, 
I'm pretty sure at the very end, or no, it's in Avengers, is when he says to Thor, oh, you know what I am. Oh, he's something about, like, you know, don't call me your brother. I'm not your brother. You know what I am. I'm sure, you know, father told you that. And so even throughout Thor, to our knowledge, Thor himself does not know of Loki's lineage. Correct. And it's like his way of, I'm getting rid of what I'm from. I'm going to be the right king. I'm not going to be that monster. Not to mention, if you think about it, like Loki was cast out twice or not chosen twice in a sense, right? So he's cast out by Laufey and abandoned as a baby. And that's when Odin finds him. But then he's also second fiddle to Thor his entire life. So he's again not chosen by his father. I mean, obviously Frigga loved him and he was, you know, clearly her favorite. But as far as fathers go, he was not chosen by both his birth father and his adopted father. And so if you're a kid who feels like you're not your parents' favorite or are playing second fiddle to your sibling your entire life, then you find out the reason is because you're adopted. And not only were you not wanted by your chosen family, but by your birth family. Like, can you imagine the layers of pain and just hurt and just self-doubt that that causes? And I think you literally watch Loki deteriorate throughout this movie with that knowledge. And even down to their friends, I mean, Lady Sif and the Warriors 3 don't ever choose Loki. You know, they're always choosing Thor. That's their leader. That's the person they trust. I mean, even when Thor was trying to get them to go to Jotunheim, the whole thing was, who's led you through all these battles? Who's done this? Who's done that? And the whole thing was, you know, the answer is Thor. So even down to their friends, it was like Loki was never... I think, accepted the way that he felt he deserved to be. And I mean, I I wanted to point this out, which is, as we're talking about, you know, he was not really accepted and loved the same way Thor was by Odin. I mean, I find this kind of funny. And I think, you know, those of you who have siblings out there can kind of maybe find it a little funny too. But like, obviously, in Ragnarok, we find out that Loki and Thor have an older sister. And I mean, isn't the kind of like stereotypical thing that the middle siblings, the forgotten sibling and like no one ever like addresses them. The oldest always, you know, got a certain amount of attention. The youngest always gets a certain amount of attention, but the oldest or the middle child's always just kind of there. And I think it's kind of funny because we always have the opposite effect throughout all of Thor is that they, especially Odin, has given all his attention and put everything into Thor all these years versus you know, Hela and Loki, obviously, being the oldest and the youngest. So I thought that was a little funny as you actually, like, sit there and you look at that family dynamic, because obviously, while we are in Thor, we believe Thor to be, it appears, the oldest. Although, even when they're young, they look to be just about the same age. So they're not really too far apart. If they are of different ages, they're not that far But I just think that was also an interesting factor that I kind of thought of while watching it, that I was like, you know, normally the stereotypical middle child is just forgotten. And it's like, and then there's Thor. (laughs) And then he's like the prized child of all of this. So I just thought that was interesting. No, for sure. I think the moral of the story here is that no matter which way you slice it, Odin is like the worst dad in the universe. And the thing is, is actually having seen that before, obviously, Uh, Especially after Ragnarok came out, a lot of people were saying that. My argument is he's not great, but yet he is in different ways. The biggest thing towards Loki, because to me, 
appeared very clearly he treated the boys more equally than I think Loki thinks they were. Yeah, I think there's a perception issue there. Yeah, because I mean, even down to that flashback of the two boys together, Odin never specifies which one is which. He straight up is like, you were both born to be kings and one day one of you will rule. Like, I think the issue comes to why it became Thor and not Loki. And I think Loki immediately assumes it comes down to his lineage and why Thor was chosen over him. And that he always is like, I just want to be treated as an equal and blah, 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 blah. But I, to your point, I think there's a slight perception issue that for years he was, he, I think he now believes, though, the reason he was not chosen for the throne was because he was a frost giant and Thor was not. And that was the difference between them more than anything else was that Thor, no matter being a bumbling idiot at the beginning of this and being what Loki's not incorrect about, would have been a terrible king. Yeah. Being, you know, chosen over him. Now he knows or he thinks he knows the reason being he's a frost giant. So I I think it's interesting because obviously Thor and Loki, their relationship essentially spans like four or five different movies. And I think it's different in literally every single one. And I, I think you just see it. So obviously this being the beginning of it, we see how his relationship with his brother, I think, is another perception that's slightly skewed because Thor does nothing but love Loki and doesn't understand why he feels the way he feels and Loki just hates him like blatantly just hates him yeah obviously we see that relationship move i don't think he always does but that's the reason you know he lets go of the of odin's staff at the end of the film yeah i think one of my favorite things in you know phases one through three is their relationship because it's really sad you know in the first thor to your point loki goes from you know, feeling inferior to his brother, but still feeling an incredible amount of love. I think that still comes through. It's obvious that he loves and admires his brother, even though he doesn't think, you know, he's the right man for the throne job, if you will. Or at least he's not ready. And he's right. Yeah, no. And that objectively is a really good call because Thor, like I said earlier, he's kind of the worst at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Super into himself and just kind of a jerk. So... Loki, all in the right on that one, in my opinion, but it's still clear that he loves his brother. And, you know, to watch that go from you're clearly the favorite, but I love you to I'm not even really your brother and I hate you is very sad to watch. But then on the other side, you know, coming out of Avengers and go moving into, you know, we don't want to get too far you know, a field here, but coming out of then Avengers and going into the Dark World and and into Ragnarok and even Infinity War for the few minutes that Loki was in it, you get to see... Oh, yeah, I forgot. I don't... mm, You get to see the relationship begin to build and kind of repair itself and go back to, you know, that trust and love that brothers who grew up together and, you know, what does Thor say in... In the Avengers, I believe, he says, you know, we grew up together, we played together, we fought together. To Thor, that was just, Loki was his guy. Like, yeah, he had his friends, but Loki was his dude. And, like, he is so, I think, flummoxed by the idea that Loki no longer feels that familial attachment to him simply because they're not related by blood. And I think that's super interesting. Yeah. 
And I mean, honestly, breaking down into Thor a little bit, because obviously I think to understand Thor, you have to understand his relationship with Loki. But even going into Thor and just his character arc throughout this film, I mean, I have to give him for probably one of the best arcs in his own, like, origin story. Yeah. Because I think, obviously, I, Tony has a has a moment more than I think Steve really does. I don't think Steve really has that, you know defining moment of like i was terrible now i'm getting better yeah i think steve has kind of that moral compass from the beginning well and that's the whole thing he's the righteous man right like that's that's what he's supposed to be and obviously i know tony has a type of moment like this but i think thor's is truly defining and you see it more than you know like for tony and i think this can be an argument that has been made especially when people get into war over civil war but Tony's <laughs> issue tends to be, and everyone's like, well, if he hadn't been kidnapped, what would he have been doing? He would have still been selling his weapons. He would have still been doing this, blah, blah, blah. For Thor, it was more of that he was cast out and he accepted it. You know, he wanted to come home after Loki told him everything that happened. He was like, I, I did what I did. I need to own up to my mistakes. And you can see him even when he's, obviously a dwindling god form because he's lost his power and he goes up against the destroyer and he's helping people get out of town and get away from it and everything he goes up against it by himself knowing he is a dwindling god state he is essentially almost mortal and so that to me is like one of the most big defining things where you really see him earn his title back and you see that this man becomes so selfless and he turns into the, the Thor that we now know from every other film. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, while I believe he definitely has character arc continuing from there, especially in Ragnarok, I think there's different depths of character arc. His most defining moment to change him into a much more knowledgeable person is in his first film. And I think that at times can, when people are like, oh, Thor is not really the best film and blah, blah, blah. Don't discredit, though, the character building that it does, because imagine having the first 15 minutes Thor in any of the other films. Oh, my God. I don't even think I would, like, enjoy watching that, because he truly is, like, difficult to watch. He's really just, like, he's a real jerk. Like, let's not sugarcoat it. He's kind of the worst. Arguably worse than Tony at the beginning of his movie, in some ways, you know? Just completely reckless. He almost gets all of his friends and his brother killed. Like... For what? For war? Yeah. Well, because some king taunted him and called him a princess? Like, come on, buddy. What are you doing? And it's cool, I think, to your point, to see him start, if you, like, want to start on the jerk scale, he's, like, 100. And then he goes down to, like, a 15, which is, like, pretty good on the jerk scale, in my opinion. So I agree. I think he has one of the better, at least, origin story arcs within the big three, if you will, because it's really very pronounced in that first movie. Yeah, I agree. And then the last thing I honestly have to say is, I hope by Thor Love and Thunder, we get a little more confirmation on where Lady Sif and the Warriors 3 are. And I hope we get more of them. Because I think and very I don't have almost any complaints about Ragnarok ever. When we reach Ragnarok and <laughs> everything, you'll be hearing how I don't have many complaints. But if any I will say the one thing, and I know uh, 
I'm gonna blank on the names because unfortunately they call them Lady Sif and the Warrior Three, so I only associate them as the Warrior Three. Alright, let me fill them in really quick. It's Volstag, Fandral, and Hogan are the Warriors Three. Is the first one the one that's in Ragnarok? Hogan is the one that's in Ragnarok and gets stabbed by Hela. And then the one who's played by Josh Dallas, that's Fandral. And the large man who keeps eating, that's Volstag. No, okay. But my, my whole thing was, we only see one of them, to my knowledge, in Ragnarok. And we don't see much of him during it. So, granted, I mean, obviously it wasn't all based off in Asgard and all that. But I was just a little thrown off. Um, especially when they very clearly, like, in the second film, and obviously we'll get to Dark World, start kind of painting Lady Sif as a possible companion for Thor, which I'm a fan of more than I was a fan of Jane personally, but especially because they paint her as that and all that, and then none of them are in Ragnarok. So I'm hoping maybe Thor, Love, and Thunder, we get more confirmation on where they are. Hopefully they're involved somewhere in that project, because I really did like them. So that's really my my last thing I had to say about Thor. I think my last thing that I want to talk about is just how much I love Asgard as a place and that, you know, not to get too into what happens later in the series, but that we won't see it again. I just think it's beautiful. I think, you know, their society is so interesting and I just enjoy the time that we do get to spend in Asgard. I think those were some of my favorite scenes and, you know, moments in the in the movie were when we got to see the full royal family and the full, you know, pomp and circumstance around them and the court and all of that good stuff. So I just, you know, this is my little diatribe on how much I love Asgard real quick. Oh, yeah, it's it's beautiful. But as I said before, Thor leads right into Avengers. So here we are reaching the Avengers part of this episode. And I have a lot to share. Me too. <laughs> I want to start by just pointing out, and obviously there's so much that goes on in this, so even in these episodes, you can't do these movies the same justice sometimes, but I want to point out there's a lot of foreshadowing that you don't notice until you've seen later works. Oh my god, I was literally thinking the exact same thing last night. It was almost in every scene. Yeah. I was like, that's going to be called back to in this movie or this show, or yep. that you know line comes back to haunt them or whatever it is. I think arguably The Avengers might be one of the most, if not the most important movie, other than obviously Infinity War and Endgame, to the Infinity Saga, truthfully. I'm glad you said that in the sense of it's not important because of the actual battle or the stones. It's important for what it does foreshadow. Yeah. And even down to comments, and I wanted to bring a few forward from the get-go. The first one I really, because there's some very obvious ones um, which, you know, might get mentioned here and there. But one of them is, you know, when Tony's sitting there talking to Bruce <laughs> and uh, they're sitting there, they're talking through, like, the screen is in between them, but he clears the screen off and they're talking about when, oh my gosh, I keep trying to call him Mark. When <laughs> Bruce is, <laughs> I'm gonna do it probably. So if I say it, I'm obviously talking about Mark Ruffalo, Bruce Banner. But, you know, he's, the first thing he says is, you know, like, oh, the, that much gamma radiation should have killed you. Like, but he's also saying, like, you need to get find a way to control it, like I did. Because he's talking about, you know, the arc reactor. I think that is a... And I never noticed it, but that's such a call to Endgame when he puts the Hulk and Bruce as one person. And he does learn to control it. 
he literally becomes... I actually didn't catch that. That's really yeah, good. Yeah, that he literally does what Tony from the very get-go says, you know, like, find a way to use it for good, get control under it. And he did. And then in the same conversation, he's sitting there and he go, he pretty much... Bruce is the one who says it. He's like, are you trying to tell me that, like, I'm supposed to be happy that he saved my life? And, you know, I forget Tony's remark, but it's based off the the idea of, like, well, guess we'll find out why, like, if it was a good thing that this happened to you. Well, obviously, Hulk's the one who snaps in Endgame. Yeah. So it was, you know? I think that was a major foreshadowing moment for two different factors on what we see in the Hulk and Bruce, or what does he call himself in, or what what does he call in Endgame? Because he's like both of them. Isn't it Smart Hulk? Smart Hulk. I think so. Or it's something of that basis. But that is, you know, two huge foreshadowing moments for that moment. I mean, obviously, when Tony and Cap are arguing, you sit there, they're on the two sides that they are during Civil War both times. Yeah. All Throughout the entire film, there's Cap, there's Iron Man, as they're arguing. Obviously, they sit there, they're already insinuating that Civil War is going to happen when he's telling, put on a suit. Go put on the suit. Let's like, go get a few your stuff rounds. On. Let's, yeah, he goes, let's go a few rounds. And then obviously, like I, the biggest one, which is probably the most noticeable, is the you're not the guy to make the, the sacrifice play, which ironically plays out twice. Yeah, I noticed that too. Because my obvious, now that, you know, now seeing Infinity War and Endgame, that's obviously what a lot of people allude to. But he does also make that choice at the end of Avengers. So he kind of pays that off really twice, to your point. Yeah. And that was something I never really thought of before that. I've obviously seen Avengers, you know, probably quite a few times, but that was something that I was like, oh, I never really thought about how he also does it at the end of this movie. Yeah. I don't think I really put it together either, because obviously when Endgame happened, it was the highlight, and, like, it was, like, you know, the one who was so selfish made the move to save the planet and the universe, and arguably, and I know when we get to Endgame, that this will be a conversation of, you know, there were other people who could have lived instead. <laughs> so, oh, no. <laughs> well, character-wise, I guess, like, yeah, but also logically, no. But yeah, so I think that almost overshadows what he does in Avengers, mm-hmm. but he does make the sacrifice move. I think it's Cap who even says, you know, Tony, that's a one-way trip. Yeah. So... They're all aware that, and even at the end, when they're right before the Hulk roars, they think he died. Yeah. Well, and then there's the flip side of that conversation, too, where Tony says to Cap, you know, everything that's special about you came out of a bottle. And, you know, basically, like, you're the man that my father made you. Like, you were nothing until my father, that's the implication there, until my father made you who you are. And then that obviously pays off in Endgame when... Cap is able to pick up Mew Mew. Yeah, thank you. I wasn't even going to try to attempt it this time. When Cap is able to pick up Mew Mew and you can see that, like, only he, I mean, obviously we all know only he who is worthy will have the power of Thor. So not only is he, you know, this super soldier that Howard Stark made and Erskine made him into, but he is also a worthy man. And therefore, it's not just that what came out of the bottle that made him special. It's who he is and his you know, outlook and his righteousness that makes him the special soldier that he is. Not a perfect soldier, but a good man. Yeah. And honestly, I will say in the long run, yes. But in that moment, it makes me angry. Just because, I mean, Cap's entire first movie is obviously about, he's such a great 
person and then becomes a great soldier, which you just said as the line. So I just like that line always makes me angry because for for Tony, I think it holds very true in that moment. You're not the man to make the sacrifice play because of who you are. And especially at that point, Tony had not had quite a bit of a character arc yet. Um, He had part of his, but not the full extent. And I think we obviously see that as a result later in Civil War and everything. But I just, the specialness of Steve always came from within who he was as a person. He just became someone, he became a fighter, essentially. In the physical sense, because he always tried to fight, he just was literally like a twig. Yeah, totally outgunned in the physical department there, Steven. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, for purposes of in the long run, yes, but that line always makes me angry because I think it always is so, you could see the associations more in my perspective to Tony than in Steve. But, like I said, there are a lot of calls to the future and what's coming. And even, like, not even within the next film, like, down the line, the end of this saga. The one that continues to blow my mind no matter how many times I've seen it post-Black Widow, is when Loki talks to her about Dracoff's daughter, and it took them, what, that movie came out in 2021 and Avengers came out in 2012, nine years to pay that line off, and they were thinking that far ahead. That just blows my mind. It just, I mean, it never stops making me, like, just take a minute, take a beat during that film and be like, man, that is just a really solid use of planning. Or honestly, even down to the Budapest line. Yeah. Like that becomes part of the whole thing in Black Widow too, from the very beginning of it. So yeah, to your point, I think it's really interesting. The depth that these films, and some of them, obviously we saw played out earlier than others, but it's the depth that these films go to, to aid. And that's why I think there are certain times that there didn't seem to be a very well done structure. But Avengers, you cannot say, is not that film that's helped set up multiple things down the line. And you see it. Think about Homecoming. It directly sets up Homecoming. It directly sets up the Hawkeye series. Yep. I mean, I was immediately looking for that scene in Avengers where he jumps off the building. So, so I was like, I. Kate's there. We see a little Kate. Like, you don't, you know, you obviously don't see a little Kate, but you know she's there. Yeah. So, like, that immediately off the top of your head is, like, another one. Then, obviously, it sets up the Dark World. It sets up Iron Man 3. It sets up, you know, really Thanos's obsession with Earth and the Avengers. It directly sets up Age of Ultron. I mean, name a movie it doesn't set up is almost, like, the better thing. Like, if it's not... Well, it even sets up Winter Soldier. I mean, down to... Oh, my gosh, what is his name? The bald guy whose name is currently escaping me. Oh, uh, Sitwell. Yeah, him being there. Being, well, not the most prominent, but he was Well, and he's in Thor, too, which is important. He's He's a line between the two, and you're like, oh, I've seen that agent before. And then you see him in Civil War, and you're like, oh, I've seen that agent before. You mean the Winter Soldier? Yeah, sorry, what did I say? You said Civil War. Sorry, sorry. I'm jumping (laughs) two movies ahead. In Winter Soldier, you see him and you're like, I've seen that guy before. Exactly. So there's a lot to me that there's that call out. And that's the most prominent thing when I was doing this rewatch was, you know, you, you really, you see it. And you don't see it in every film. But I, like I said, this is definitely a pivotal one. And we might as well get right into, since you mentioned Thanos, we have to mention Loki first. So 
this is directly after he he lets go of Odin's cane, or whatever he calls it. Which really, in a lot of senses, is a suicide attempt. Like, he had no idea he was going to survive and be taken in, in a really negative sense, but taken in by Thanos and his children and his whole order. So, like, he basically let go of that thinking, I'm just going to float around in space now and die. Well, we, yeah. But we clearly see the manipulation behind him. Look at the state he's in. One of the things that I really was taken aback by that I didn't notice in some of my previous viewings of Thor in the end credit scene where you see him in the reflection with Eric Selvig when Eric is talking to director Fury, it's more than just the bags under the eyes. Like, his teeth are almost rotting. Like, Loki looks incredibly ill. Yeah. And he doesn't look much better no. in Avengers. He looks a little bit better, but not much. So you clearly see the toll that working for Thanos brings on him. And I, I think what's interesting is, like, his whole thing is he just wants to rule, but now all of a sudden he's talking about freedom. Yeah. And it's all about, I'm here to take freedom. Freedom is too much for all of you. Blah, 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 blah. Like, so I think that's interesting because we see his narrative change very quickly from I am an heir to a throne and I deserve the chance to rule versus I deserve to rule because you don't deserve to have freedom and you need someone to kneel to. And so I think that's really interesting in the way that Thanos gets in his head and manipulates his desires to his advantage. Well, that all stems back from the Tesseract. Like, they all keep saying, whether it's Loki or Selvig or Hawkeye, you know, what did the Tesseract show you? What truths did it show you? Which I thought was super interesting because it's the Space Stone. So, like, is it really the Tesseract that's showing this that to them or the Mind Stone that is unwittingly, you know, being held or being housed in that scepter? In my head, it's more the Mind Stone than the Tesseract, yeah. but people can't kind of tell between the two because they are kind of connected. Yeah. And so for me, like, obviously we have the villains going on, we have the big battle. I will say my biggest thing, and I think this is something, because this gets brought up, and this is essentially what Civil War is about, is their jurisdiction. And I think we see a, a couple times the whole, you know, oh, well, they come in here, they destroy, and they leave. Which I think is valid, but also, as I was watching this, I was like, or you all would have died. Yeah, I'm like, mm, let's talk about, like, the risk versus reward on this, please. Yeah, and I mean, I can't say I have lived through, like, a war that has happened in my backyard. <laughs> you know, I think very rarely, as Americans, that has happened in our sense. So, but I, in my 20 years, have not. But... Even war, as an instance, I mean, I think to, like, especially the world wars that ravaged Europe, and I'm like, same just, but you didn't ask the soldiers to clean up the towns, you you know, so I thought of the same thing, and I, I, I was like, you know, they fought for you, they did, and I think that that starts that disconnect, because we see across the screens, we see all these people who are fans, all these people who are happy, then here and there we see the people, well, now what, like, w then they all just left, and then this and that, but it was like, okay, what did you want them to do? Yeah. Like, and then I think in Homecoming, we see people who are employed to clean up the city. So 
if you want to look at it from a different point of view, economically, they just created so many jobs. (laughs) Well, they did, but then the Department of Damage Control took them away. And that's kind of Vulture's, like, he has this line where he's like, so they made the mess and now they're getting paid to clean it up. Like, he literally brings that up, which is kind of the flip side of that coin. Yeah, that's fair. But I'm just like, when you amount it to a, a, a war that has happened in history, it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure the soldiers didn't come back after they just had a fight in the town and ravaged the entire town and were like, let me fix this all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, they were often doing other things. And I think their whole thing is, oh, now they just left and they all just dispersed. But if you really think about it, while maybe Hawkeye and Natasha, we don't have confirmation, they're still assassins. They probably went back onto another assignment. I mean, at least Natasha follows Steve. We see Winter Soldier's not long after this. Thank goodness. But, <laughs> but, I mean, Iron Man 3 is right after this. Thor The Dark World is really not long after this. So It's as you, literally right after. Yeah. I mean, they arrive in Asgard, like, the first scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, my point being is we see what they all go on to do after this, and they're all doing other jobs. Like, they're not just like, oh, we disappeared, peace out, see ya. And that's why I'm amounting it similar to war. I mean, the soldiers didn't come back to fix the town because they had the next battle. Yeah. And in this case, it wasn't together, but they all had their next assignment or place to be or next battle in all senses. For me, that stood out more than anything because obviously, like I said, this becomes the big argument in Civil War is their jurisdiction and the fact that they just wreck and leave. So, I don't know, that's where, that's personally, at least in Avengers, where my point stands. <laughs> give, give and take some time for me to rethink. I know Civil War-wise where I stand, at least with the Accords, but, I mean, for the point of view of people who are, who are living in the areas that are wrecked, I just, I'm like, they just saved your lives. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I think for me, the thing that stands out in Avengers, other than kind of the, the call forwards or the foreshadowing that we talked about before is a twofold thing that is kind of related. So one, I love Phil Coulson. Yeah. And, you know, really these last two movies, he features pretty prominently within Thor and then the Avengers. So I was really loving the Clark Gregg screen time on these. And then obviously we see his death in the Avengers, which sets up then Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., TBD on that where that stands in the larger MCU at this point. But I really, really enjoyed his character. I think he's a good kind of moral compass in a way or like a, I mean, he really is a martyr. So I think he fulfills that role well for the Avengers. Yeah. And I think the other thing that really struck me was kind of how much I wasn't expecting this, but how much I missed S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D. obviously features very prominently in this film and I kind of was thinking, you know, I miss having, you know, a S.H.I.E.L.D.-like agency around that kind of gave the Avengers infrastructure and gave them the ability to do things and see things and have intelligence and gave them resources. So I really, really enjoyed seeing them kind of at their peak because very soon they're going to fall. And that kind of made me feel a little nostalgic. I was about to say that. Honestly, for Avengers, this is another film that I think I don't have many complaints of. It was that origin of the Avengers. It really set up everything. I mean, that was the whole point of what we were just talking about when we first started talking about the film is even down to certain lines was starting and was 
foreshadowing things. But I will say, and I don't think I would have had this complaint up until December 16th, but I really, and I mean, I think they show it a lot before the final battle, how you have six very different people who are, they have different motives and they're trying to, you know, function different ways. So I think they show, you know, that's how Loki's able to tear them apart. But after watching Spider-Man, I will say I'm kind of mad we didn't get any, like, nod to no one in that group of six knows how to fight as a team. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and magically they all worked very well together. And I, like I said, I think you see a lot of the issue beforehand, but I'm like, you know, oh, no, I shouldn't say no one, Thor. Well, I was also going to say Cap because he worked, and Clint Natasha. So really- But Clint, but to be fair, Clint Natasha had a, no- Usually assassins and spies work by themselves, and even when they do work with others, I mean, Natasha worked with other Black Widows, and then Hawkeye. And Hawkeye probably worked with also similar people to their skill level. Not a Greek, Greek, a Norse god, (laughs) not a man flying around in a tin suit, not a dude, a green dude. Yeah, no, Tony and Hulk, I think, are the epitome of I've never worked with anyone ever. I think the others have kind of either, you know, by virtue of being in the army or, you know, by Thor's virtue of being a warrior, they kind of have more experience. And then, to your point, Cap, or not, sorry, not Cap, Hawkeye and Natasha also have, you know, their experiences. But I think it really boils down to, like, a third, a solid third of them really are kind of go for it on your own, guys, and don't... Like, I thought it was interesting to that point. One of the things that stuck out to me was, like, the Hulk was this, like uncontrollable rage monster on the helicarrier yeah and then cap's giving orders and he's like hook smash and he just smiles which is so cute he's like i got you man but it doesn't make sense or the fact that he like goes up to save tony like if he's this like mindless beast like he's portrayed basically up until that point in the film how does he know that tony's an ally and supposed to you know save like you can make an argument that like he just wants to smash people, so he's just going to go smash those gross-looking alien guys. Okay, cool. You can you make a valid argument for that, but why does he go save Tony? I think that's, like, one thing where I was kind of like, wait a minute. And I'm glad you bring that up, too, because, I mean, and I think we get a slight nod to this when he punches Thor. But, and what are they in? Grand Central, I believe. Grand Central, But I'm yeah. like, that's the only indication we get that he remembers him from that entire fight they had on the ship. So I'm like, that's weird. Or when he tried to kill Natasha. Yeah, and and magically now he's like, ha ha ha, buddies. And I'm like, what? So I thought that was weird. And my other complaint, and this is just down to Joss Whedon and who he is, but Natasha's character sucked. And I noticed it more this time around than I think I ever have, because obviously we are first introduced to her in Iron Man 2. And that version of Natasha is very similar to the Winter Soldier version of Natasha. And I would argue also similar to Black Widow Natasha. I was just about to say. And I think she's very similar to Black Widow Natasha, which bleeds kind of into the Infinity War saga. Correct. Or like the last two. And then we have, and I know this will get brought up in Age of Ultron too, but then we have Avengers and Age of Ultron. And I always thought Age of Ultron was just the bigger issue until I was watching this. And there were two scenes. They were both with the Hulk. The first was when he, she goes to get Bruce and he yells at her and he goes, don't lie to me. And she holds the gun up. That's not the problem. No, but she looks very shaken up. Yeah. She is an assassin. She is a black widow assassin. And she just no, got I yelled at. I that too. Yeah. 
And now, and she looks like she's terrified. She also had a whole SWAT team out behind, like, to back her. So I was kind of like, okay. And I kind of let it go. But then it was that moment, and I noticed it before, but I didn't let it sit, was when the Hulk had attacked her, and she was sitting there shaking, and Fury was like, does anybody copy? Because he wanted someone to go after Barton, and she's, like, all, like, shaken up, and she's, like, looks like she's seen a ghost. And I guess to an extent, it's, like, a shocking situation, but she's also a Black Widow assassin. Yeah, I also noticed that scene as well. I was like, that is incredibly uncharacteristic of what we know about her for the rest of the series like I was like you're weakening her you're making her look like a scared girl you know I obviously I know that trying to deal with the Hulk has to be a horrifying experience but when you saw her take down those Russian guys in the beginning of the film it's completely incongruous with how she acts at the beginning of the film where she's like this idiot's giving me everything I mean, this woman took down Loki and manipulated the master manipulator. And you're going to tell me that the Hulk's going to reduce her to tears? I'm sorry, you can't have it both ways. Well, and you see her very different in Iron Man 2. You see her very different in The Winter Soldier. And you see her very different in Civil War going, or not Civil War, Black Widow. Go, well, I guess from a little Civil War. Civil War going into Black Widow going into Infinity War. And... I think when you give, and now obviously I know the Black Widow character as comics because she's one of the characters I follow closely, and she is my, like, on the top of the full list would be the top character for me, but it's, when you give her MCU character even more background in Black Widow, and you see what they are taught to go through. I mean, even the whole thing Melina always says to them about the pain only makes you stronger, Yeah, and you see... And even comparing her to Yelena, and that it's not in a bad way of comparison, because I, I think people sometimes get upset about the comparisons that could come from the two of them. But when you see two of these Black Widows back to back, I just, I, it frustrates me that you almost belittle the strength of this character, that she was taught to, I mean, she broke her own freaking nose so that she couldn't smell the pheromones from what's-his-face, from Dracov, and to beat him. Because she literally was like, you were too weak to do it yourself. Smash onto the table. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> and so I guess, like, it's just very frustrating to me. Those were hard scenes for me to watch. It's worse than Age of Ultron. I know it's worse than Age of Ultron. But I didn't, I think, really catch it as much in Avengers as I did this watch. I definitely caught it more. No, I agree. And I think to your point, that is a function of the director because who directed those two movies and none of the others? Yeah, And we're not going to go into the whole Joss Whedon saga because that's not what this podcast is about. But let's just leave it at that. I mean, you have to take these movies and her characterization in these movies with a grain of salt. Yeah. Now knowing what we know about the man who directed this film, period. Well, and, that, and I, I, I get that. I just, I think... When you look at all the characters, I think Natasha's was almost done the most dirty. Oh, I agree. Because I don't think she had a consistent... I mean, she had an arc, obviously, but I don't think it was ever consistent. I think her motivations always seemed strange because, you know, one film, she was this super cool, like, I love her. She, like, is awesome, but super mysterious as she's supposed to be the assassin. And then it's like, in other films, it's like she's painted very differently so it's a little frustrating as a Natasha stand to watch it. And I think that's 
out of all the things in Avengers, my biggest complaint about the film. I think that's fair. I think she's one of the characters that, you know, the MCU has done a good job of keeping things relatively consistent, even though they kind of have a revolving door of directors. You know, you have one set of directors that might do one franchise or one movie out of a franchise or whatever it might be. And then you have another director or set of directors who's going to do the team-up movie. And usually the characterization is relatively consistent from, you know, point A to B to C. I think she's one of the characters that has suffered the most Mm -hmm. because she's inconsistent based on who the director is. Yeah. Versus I think her male counterparts are, you know, relatively on the level. I know people have complaints, you know, from Ragnarok Thor to Infinity War Thor to Endgame Thor. Yes, huge. (laughs) And I know we'll get there, but I think Natasha... From even early on to basically the end, she has the most struggles with character consistency based on who's directing her. Yes, I agree. And I and to your point, I think Thor eventually suffers something of that sort. And honestly, this is an almost, and I know this was brought up before, on almost inside the same director issue was Steve. Yeah. So I do think that there are a couple other characters that suffer it, but Natasha's, I think, she suffers it across the most because she, it starts one way, goes a different way. Starts another, or or then she's in the Winter Soldier, it's different, but then it goes back. And I she goes very back and forth depending on who's directing it versus there's, you know, an inconsistency for like Thor, for example, Ragnarok and then Infinity War like undoes everything Ragnarok does and then Endgame makes it worse versus for her it's literally a back and forth battle yeah she she bounces from one side to the other so she definitely is that character that i think was the most poorly written throughout all of her films and i think avengers is one of those movies you can kind of see it uh it comes to light compared especially then when you go when you watch them in timeline order and then you go to the winter soldier yeah it's like whiplash yeah yeah exactly and it's not long after i think it's within the next two or three movies yeah i mean i know we have iron man 3 and then i'm sorry it's gonna be the dark world and then iron man 3 and i think right after that is winter soldier i'm not sure then if it might be age of ultron it's guardians 1 and 2 actually oh okay that's fair which is a is a very odd odd switch but you know it happens <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that that's my biggest complaint other than that i love avengers i think it's great i think it obviously is a big moment because there are some things you can never undo and it's you know the the first og6 forming when they have that really iconic the, the music is playing and they're in their circle and everyone gets their their time in front of the camera kind of thing you have very iconic scenes you have the very beginning of really the big depth i mean this is the first time we see thanos in the end credit scene because he's a purple looking oh my great. god that colorization is really horrible i mean really oh it was i'm so glad he got better because that i could not weird. have watched that for an entire two movie arc no or the glowing eyes like what was up with that, that was i weird. just chalked that up to him being in space <laughs> that's what i said i was like he's glowing because space because that's how space works yeah it was not good but it's a huge movie i, I can't say i have many complaints besides the ones i've aired I love it. That's all I got to say about it personally, because I think a lot of it is that build up and the battle. This movie isn't so much the same because you're bringing everyone together. It's not the same kind of thing as an origin story or as a continuation in a trilogy. So I agree. I too really love this movie. It's one of my favorites to go back to. 
I'm a recent Loki fan, so the fact that Loki has a lot of screen time is always a plus for me. But even just, you know, to what we talked about before, it's a really, really important film for a lot of franchises moving forward and a lot of films moving forward. So I really like how consequential this movie is. That's something that I really also enjoy as well. I don't have a lot of complaints. I think it's a very solid film. I think for the first team-up film, for it to come out so strongly is really kind of a testament to Marvel because it's very easy to, you know, make those mistakes on these team-up films. And honestly, the CGI aged fairly well. Yeah. For it to be 10 years old this year, it aged fairly well. Yeah. There are some spots. One that I clocked was when... Iron Man and Thor are fighting and Iron Man takes Thor and he flies him up and he basically takes his face into a mountain and like flies him up the side of the mountain by scraping his face. Like kind of what Makari does to Icarus in the Eternals. (laughs) Yes. Like then Thor looked a little bit like a clay doll. But other than that, I have to say it did pretty okay. Yeah, I mean, my my one that I really noticed was one of the ones where once again, Cap was jumping through the air with an explosion behind him. I just think they're not good at doing it with Cap. I don't because he <laughs> always has the CGI problems, which is so funny to me because you have something like the Hulk running around and Tony is not in real armor. I know. So like, I think it's interesting how they can come out so like, fine looking and then you just have poor like steve's out here just trying to run with an explosion behind him and it never looks right like it just looks so off can i just say one thing that i clocked with steve now that you brought up just steve and explosions the fact that that man fits his entire large man body underneath that shield to block himself from explosions and does it consistently movie to movie i know just brings me joy it just does (laughs) But I just, that's what I just always noticed. I noticed it again because there's the really iconic scene in his movie, his first movie as well. And I know it was mentioned in the replay (laughs) because that was a point where the CGI didn't look well. Oh, that was bad. And once again, didn't look great in this one. But for the most part, you know, for the amount of of things they had to CGI, it looked great. Yeah. I mean, the Chitauri were horrifying in a good way. Well, and I think some of the small things that are a little less important of cgi can sometimes lose the um budget almost (laughs) versus i mean that's why i was so surprised that a lot of the first avenger didn't seem to age well cgi wise because i was like you're just blowing things up mainly (laughs) versus you do the avengers which is only like what two years later at one two years later and they're like They've got full aliens out here, and that's the entire fight scene, and it looks almost perfect still 10 years later. But I get off topic. That has been our Marvel replay for Thor and Avengers. Taylor, I know you have more to say. Yeah, it's been a really fun one. These are, I think this is probably one of my favorite groupings of the replay. I think they, to Katie's point earlier, they go together really well, so I'm glad we got to do these two together since they're almost like You know, if you're looking at it from a Thor-Loki perspective, essentially one big movie, A Tale of Two Brothers, if you will. Yeah. So I really enjoyed doing these and and re-watching these movies, and we're super glad that you guys came with us on this journey. Again, as you have probably realized by now, because we're through the episode, we definitely do talk about implications moving forward. So if this is your first listen, we gave a little bit of spoilers for you, and apologies for that, but... You know, hopefully this will give you some things to look forward to in some of the other movies. 
again, this has been really, really fun. And I'm glad we got to to chat about these movies today. Yeah, I, I am too. I, I love these films. So can, I, I can always talk about them. Just wait till we reach the Winter Soldier. And then <laughs> I mean, I'm always looking for an excuse to rewatch Marvel. So <laughs> this is a pretty good one in my book. Me too, honestly. All right. Well, thank you guys again for joining us for this replay series. It's been amazing. And as always, if you're a fan of the show, please don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice. If you feel so inclined, you can go ahead and leave us a rating or review on that platform. Always appreciated. And of course, you can always check us out as well on our Spotify page where we have different playlists with podcast episodes for the different series as well as a specific playlist for the replay series. So if you're looking just for the replay episodes, you can find those all housed in one location there. And we also have one big grand playlist for all of the songs, at least that are available on Spotify, that appear in the shows and movies. So if you're looking to just get in the MCU mood without watching the films, you can check those out as well in our Spotify playlist, which is linked in the show notes. Last but not least, we have extra content for you on the blog, whether that be memes or extra context or content around the shows or movies coming out. So be sure to follow that or at least check it out on a regular basis as well if you're looking for some fun Marvel content in between our episodes. And make sure you guys are following Twitter. It's Let's Talk MFT. All new podcast episodes and blog posts go up on there. So direct links right to them. We also share our own theories along with retweeting and liking other theories and Marvel news that is going on. So for one place for everything, just make sure you're following that so you can keep up with everything. And as always, Marvel just blew your mind. So let's talk about it.